The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I want you to open your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 28, and we're going to uses our text tonight, verses 19 and 20. There are many passages of Scripture in the Bible that are difficult to preach. Sometimes you wonder, well, how, how am I going to make a message out of this, and what can I do, as I said this morning, to sermonize? And you come across those passages like I dealt with this morning. We're doing a verse-by-verse study, and so we really have to just take everything as it comes, and some passages are just harder than others to make sermons out of. And you may have been thinking this morning, he is really having a hard time making a sermon out of that. I don't know. But uh, when you come to a passage like Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, how many sermons have been preached on this portion of Scripture? I mean, uh, how many times have people related the Great Commission, what Christ has given the church to do? There's so many sermons that we can draw out of this. Most of you probably don't even need to open your Bibles to read the text. But this is where we're taking our text tonight, and we're starting the new series uh, tonight, Living for Jesus. And I intended that this would be a series of about ten sermons, but I got into the second sermon, and it turned out to be more than I thought, so I added a sermon. And then I got into the third sermon that I wanted to write, and I got into another thought and had to extend that one, so... Uh, I just keep adding and adding. So I don't know where we're going to end up with this. It's going to be more than ten sermons, though. And you know how I am. Uh, I uh, tend to take things a little bit maybe longer than they should. I don't know. But uh, we're going to spend quite a while talking about this subject of living for Jesus. And the series is a very practical one. Uh, As you know, I'm more of a doctrinal preacher. And uh, I really do believe that doctrine is some of the most practical of all subjects, the doctrines that we believe, those are practical subjects that we deal with. But unfortunately, most people don't see it that way. Uh, They think you have to be a little bit more practical than just giving doctrine. And so this series is a little bit more straightforward and perhaps in getting to the point of the practical issues. But I do hope that it will help you and it will really cause you, help you to be better servants of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And if there's anything that churches need, if there's anything that this church needs, is more people who are serious about their Christianity. Now, God's expectations for his people are high. He did so much for us that he can rightfully expect that we're going to live for him. And with his help, we'll meet his expectations. We will be able to do what he's told us to do while living in a sinful world. Now, the title is Living for Jesus, and... Some of you know the old hymn that uh, Lucy and Melissa played just a moment ago. The hymn is Living for Jesus, and uh, that hymn is in our hymn book. Perhaps we'll sing that a little bit later on uh, in the series. But all of the verses of that song are very good. Let me just read to you the, the first verse of that song. It says, Living for Jesus, a life that is true. Striving to please him in all that I do. Yielding allegiance, glad-hearted and free. This is the pathway of blessing for me. O Jesus, Lord and Savior, I give myself to thee. For thou in thine atonement didst give thyself for me. I own no other master. My heart shall be thy throne. 
My life I give henceforth to live, O Christ, for thee alone. I think we can sum up the words of that song in two verses that were given by the Apostle Paul. One of them was written by Paul, the other one was spoken by him. Philippians 1.31, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul wrote that to the Philippians. And then in Acts 17.28, Luke records these words of Paul, For in him we live and move and have our being. So our life is Christ. He lives in us, and we must shine. Let his light shine through us, his life shine in us. Now, our text then is Matthew 28, 19 and 20, which says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you alway, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Now, the subject of the message tonight, our first lesson, is living as a disciple. And a very important question that each of us needs to ask ourselves is, are we truly disciples of Jesus Christ? Now, there are many people that say that they believe in Jesus, folks that attend church, maybe they even give semi-regularly to the church, they're good neighbors, they try to live good lives, they try to do the best that they can, but they may not really be disciples of Jesus. And there's a very strong warning that we have about this in Matthew chapter 7 that Jesus said there are many people who think that they are my disciples and there are many people in that last time will come and they'll say, look at all the wonderful things that we've done for you. And they'll talk about how, how great things that they are in their great people that they are in their Christian lives. And Jesus talks about them as people who profess to know him, profess to be in the faith, but they don't actually possess the Christian life. They are not actually believers in Jesus. So they go through the motions of Christianity, but they're not real Christians. Now, it may seem hard for us to believe, but there are some even of our fundamental brethren who believe that it's possible to be saved and yet not be a disciple. That it's actually possible that you could believe in Jesus Christ, but never become a disciple of him. Of course, these are people that don't believe in lordship salvation, so they believe you can get him as Savior, but you could become a disciple later. Or it could be possible that you might not be a disciple at all. And so what they do is they put this, these people into a, a class of what they call carnal Christians, a category of carnal Christianity, but the Bible doesn't really have a category like that. There, there isn't a category of Christians that are a lesser, inferior type of Christian that don't actually ever enter into discipleship. Now, it's true that there are some people, some people who have professed Christ, and they are Christians that they live after the flesh. But a real disciple of Christ, a real follower of Christ, a believer, can't stay there. He won't stay there. He will be a disciple, and he'll enter into discipleship upon that faith that he puts in Christ. And so he will begin a process of sanctification, and that is where he experiences growth, in some degree at least, to become more like Christ. So if there is no discipleship, there is no Christianity, and so we would wholeheartedly reject the idea that it's possible to be a Christian and not to be a disciple. Now, what we find then are people that aren't Christians that are trying in one way or another to live the Christian life. 
They try to live it, but they don't really know him. But to be a disciple, you actually do have to know Christ, and you have to follow the plan that God has laid out in the Scripture for discipleship. I remember hearing this story a long time ago, and, and I may have related it to you at another time, but there was a man who asked a mail-order company to send him plans to build a birdhouse. And when they sent him the plans, they sent him a plan for a sailboat instead of a birdhouse. And so he was trying to put this thing together, and he just could not figure out how a bird could live in this stupid-looking house. So he got all the plan, got the plans together, got all the parts back together, and he sent it back to the mail-order house. And the mail-order house sent him back the right plans and with an apology, and they said in a note to him, if you think that it was difficult for you, you should have seen how hard it was for the man who got your plans trying to sail a birdhouse. <laughs> and that's, that's the way that it is many times with um, people who try to operate on the plans of Christ. They try to live like Christians, but they're not really qualified to be disciples. And here's the thing, the plans of Christ don't work for anybody else but his people. Now, in the text verses here of Matthew 28 and 19 and 20, we have the plans of Christ for his church. Shortly before he ascended into heaven, he gave his disciples this great commission, and he starts it this way, he says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations. And right there in that one phrase, we have the command to make disciples. Teach is the same root word from which we get disciple. And so it's very strange that anyone could come to the conclusion that people could be saved with, without becoming disciples when the Great Commission starts this way. Even before it speaks of baptism, it's already talking about a person entering into discipleship to do what the Lord has called him to do. Now we understand that faith in the Lord does come first, and we understand that incorporated into the learning of Christ, that inherent in the word teach itself, which is the source of the concept of our converts learning about Christ and faith, in that in that very word there is discipleship. And so the purpose of our study tonight is to help us to understand what does that mean to be a disciple of Jesus. And when we know that and when we understand it, then we can live in it. We can live for Jesus. Now first then we need to look at this. And that is the definition of discipleship. Now teach in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen is from the Greek word mathotuo. And that's the verb form of the same word that's translated as disciple, which is methetes. And that word actually means to learn. It means to be a pupil that enlists himself to be disciplined. And that's what discipline is. It means to be a disciple. It means to teach and to train someone in a certain field. And this is why that you'll hear sometimes people will say, well, that person is an expert in this discipline. The discipline, perhaps, of mathematics, or maybe the discipline of physics or some other science. This person has been trained in that particular discipline. Well, a disciple of Jesus is a person that has been disciplined in the faith of Jesus Christ. And there, when I use the word faith, I mean the body of Christian truth, which importantly includes our sanctification. Sanctify, sanctify means to... Set apart to God, it means to become holy as God is holy. It means to be like Him. And to be like Him, we have to know His character. I mean, this is an impossible thing. You can't be like God if you don't know what God is like. 
So a true disciple is one who wants to know more about Christ. There, there's a desire for a deeper learning about Christ. And there has to be that progression in the faith. And you can't be just content to float up here on the surface of Christianity. There was a pastor that was asked once, how, how uh, large is your pastorate? And preachers like to talk about those things, compare those things. And this pastor said, oh, well, my pastorate is about 25 miles wide and an inch deep. And that's the way that it is for many, many churches. There are people in Christian churches, they cover a lot of ground, they, they know a little bit about a lot of things, but they never come to a deeper understanding of God's Word. Now, we're going to go into more detail about those kinds of things in our study and in the meantime, what I would encourage you to do along those lines is, if you can, come out to our Wednesday night class, the fundamentals class. Uh, our attendance dropped a little bit. Now it's coming back up, and we're happy for that. But I think part of the reason that so many people dropped out of that class is because we go a lot deeper than many Christians want to go. And there are many people that are just one-inch Christians. They're not interested in getting into the deeper things of God's Word. But a disciple is a student, he's a learner, and what he wants to do is to get, get deeper than an inch. He wants to know more about Christ. And then not only is discipleship about learning, but it also has the meaning of being an adherent. And what is an adherent? Well, most of you know what the word adhesive means. You probably have some kind of an adhesive in your house, like a super glue or Elmer's glue, scotch tape or anything like that. That's an adhesive. An adhesive is an agent that bonds two things together. An adherent, that's just another form of the word adhesive, and an adherent is someone who sticks to the teachings of another. And so when you become a disciple of Christ, you stick to his teachings. You're, you're, you're bonded to him. And thank the Lord for this, it's a bond that can never be broken. Oh, a real disciple of Christ is never going to depart from his teachings. The Apostle John said that if you come across someone who claimed to be a Christian and they left, they never were true Christians to begin with. So there is no true Christian that ever becomes a non-Christian. There is no such thing as a former Christian. Now, once you've trusted Christ, you're always a Christian. Well, secondly, I'd like you to note the destination of discipleship. Now, fixed in our future is a goal that we pursue... Paul spoke of the goal for his life. He said in Philippians 3.14, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So his goal was the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. William MacDonald wrote on this verse, and he said, This includes all the purposes that God had in mind in saving us. It includes salvation, conformity to Christ, joint heirship with him, a home in heaven, and numberless other spiritual blessings. And your discipleship will take you to those places. And I would suggest that central to those thoughts is the word conformity. Romans 8.29 says that you are predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son. And so your destination in this life will be this. It's to be a disciple, one who is like Christ. And Jesus said those very words in Luke 6.40. He said, the disciple is not above his master, but everyone that is perfect shall be as his master. Jesus said, as his master, and he's the one that is the master. And so the disciple spends his time learning from the teacher. The disciple's not someone who goes his own way, not someone that has a better idea than the teacher 
And we do run across many people in churches that think they have a better idea about things. Pastor often faces that. There are people who have a better idea the way the church should be run. But more particularly, and if you'll let me just uh, get off on another path here for just a moment, there, there are many people that, that think that we need another plan to get people into church. That we need a new way to get people to come to church. Now they understand this. They know that the world doesn't like the church. And so the popular idea has become to to take the Rick Warren method that's in the purpose-driven church, and that method is to make the church like the world. And that is to survey the world and see what people of the world like and then give them an atmosphere that they're used to. And so when they come to church, they're not going to feel out of place because they're in a place that they feel used to. But I would suggest to you that the, uh, there is no place that a non-Christian should feel more out of place than at church. Now, we want people to come... Certainly we want them to come, but we're not to give them the same thing that they get out there. Now the world has plenty of resources to interest worldly people. We're never going to be able to compete with the world on that level. But their idea is that what the church has to do is catch up to the world. And so what they've done, they've added entertainment to the church services. There's got to be a rock band there. There's got to be a coffee court. We've got to have the Starbucks church. And so they put on plays instead of preaching. They want it to be casual and non-confining. But let me tell you this, that Jesus knew that the world was never going to like what we have to offer. He said people are going to hate the gospel. They hate, they hate the cross. And he didn't give us, knowing that information, he's all-knowing, omniscient, of course, knowing that information, he didn't give us another way to get people in the church but the gospel. The gospel saves in this age just as it did in the time of the apostles. So there's no need for us to change the method. We don't really need to change the approach because it's not the approach that saves anyway. The approach to it doesn't save. It's the Holy Spirit that convicts the heart of the sinner and then the Father draws him to Christ and that comes through the preaching of the gospel. The churches have added promotions and skits and bands and balloons and prizes and pies and parties. And all of those things, you know when they started doing that? They started to do it when they left the idea that the Holy Spirit is fully in charge of the human heart. And so they have a worldly method to get people into the church. Well, I need to stop with that. We need to go on. That's just a little extra for you tonight. But my point here is that the disciple does not have a better way than his teacher. He is as his teacher. He follows that direction. The scriptures give us special terminology for that doctrine. I used the word a moment ago. It's the word conformity. The people of the world don't like the word conformity because they want to be individualistic. And the strange thing about that is, is that the most individualistic people are the ones that are the most conformed. Because they're conformed to a godless society where everybody's exactly alike. I think I would prefer conformity to Christ. So disciples are to be conformed to him because that is what Scripture says they are predestined to. I mean, when you get saved, this just comes. Romans 8, 29, again, says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. 
Now, we will reach conformity to Christ. That's what we're designed to do. Of course, when we get to heaven, we have the glorification and all of that, and that's when we become perfectly like Christ. But God doesn't leave us alone in this day, in this age, and in our lifetimes. No, we're to be conformed to Christ now. And we're to be working in that area now. And the conformity to Christ is something that starts on the inside of a person, not on the outside. If you concentrate on the outside and you start with the things like the haircuts and the clothes and other externals, that's all you'll ever have. You'll have just what's on the outside. No, conformity begins with sanctification, and that sanctification starts in your heart. And when your heart is right, what happens is the outward appearances start to catch up with that. The externals begin to show when the heart is right. So conformity starts with the heart. That's our sanctification. And you can be sure of that. When your heart is right, then the appearance will begin to show it. I read something interesting the other day. This was an article that was written by a Christian lady. And it was entitled, What to Say to That Immodestly Dressed Girl at Church. It was a great article. And there were two parts of it that caught my eye. The first was this. This lady wrote, Instead of passing down a list of rules for what we wear, the Bible encourages us to wear the qualities of Christ. This is why you have to start with the gospel when approaching this issue. No one can wear the qualities of Christ until they have turned their lives over to him. Now that was an interesting statement, considering that what people wear could be an indication that they're not actually saved. Now, that's not her intended conclusion to that statement, but it's there anyway. She inadvertently drew that conclusion. But here's the other thing that really caught my eye. She said, we need to stop asking, how can we get our girls to dress modestly? And start asking, how can we get our girls to be passionate students of God's word? Hebrews 4.12 tells us that God's word works like a sword, surgically removing those parts of our hearts that don't line up with the holiness of God. Which would you prefer, a girl who covers up out of obligation or a girl who chooses to change because of God's work in her through his word? And that paragraph is a scriptural response. The change has to come inwardly, and that's always where conformity begins. Now, those who claim a Christianity that never makes any changes in their lifestyle are not really true disciples of Jesus. And what we're talking about here, it goes beyond speaking of clothes. And this is beyond uh, the way that you talk. And it's, it's people that you associate with. It's the places that you go, the places that you have it. Everything there is about you is considered in this conformity. Paul put it this way in a most demanding scripture. In 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5, he said, Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And when every thought is captured and then it's put through the filter of God's word, the result of that is obedience to what we know is right. And that's when we are the true disciples of Jesus. Well, that brings me to a third point, which is how to identify true disciples. So thirdly, we look at the duties of discipleship. Those that are Christ's disciples will attend to his duties. So how do you know that you are a disciple and how will other people know that you are a disciple? 
We can well imagine that the master teacher has some good information about that. He knows how to deal with this. And so that question begins this way, John 8, 31. Jesus said, if ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. Let me give you three ways to know that you are a true disciple of Jesus. What does a true disciple do? Well, first of all, a true disciple continues with Christ. He continues with him. Now, if you're a student of doctrine, you'll, you'll want to know, well, what is that doctrine that teaches that we will continue with Christ? And that is the doctrine of perseverance. A true disciple perseveres in the ways of the Lord. Now, in theology, perseverance means uh, that a person who's been chosen by God will continue in a state of grace forever, and he will realize the end of his salvation. Now, strangely enough, though, we run afoul of Many people on this doctrine, and they'll say, well, we don't believe in the doctrine of perseverance. We believe in the doctrine of preservation. And I scratch my head over the difference sometimes because perseverance teaches that Christians will overcome the world. I mean, the believer is assured of this. He's going to have the final victory. He will persevere, and that's why he's reserved. So final victory is there, even though you know, as a Christian, there are many battles that you lose. There are days of your life when you lose battles. You don't always come out the winner. You may fall into sin. Our confession of faith says it's even possible to fall in such grievous sin that it seems that we're not even Christians at all. But those same confessions are very consistent with God's Word. They tell us that a Christian can never continually live in sin. He's always brought back, either by gentle, godly influences or sometimes by harsh influences, because God knows how to chastise His people. He knows how to bring them back to where they serve Him again. And so you might lose some daily battles, but the outcome of the war that we're engaged in is never in question. We know who's going to win this battle or win this war in the end. And here's another thing that you need to know, though. You don't actually have an excuse to lose any battles. None. There's no excuse for that because we all have the power living in us to overcome the world. That's what Scripture says. So how do you do that? Well, you have to abide in Christ. You have to continue with Him. And as Paul wrote in that verse in 2 Corinthians, you have to bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. Well, how do you do that? You begin by being a student of God's Word. There's no one who wins a battle without the sword of the Spirit. What is that sword of the Spirit? That's the Word of God. What did David say? We've got to hide the Word of God in our hearts that we might not sin against God. So you can never expect that you're going to be a mighty soldier on the battlefield if you don't have the sword. If you don't carry the sword, know what the sword is all about. Now secondly, what do you need? Well, it doesn't do any good to read and study God's Word if you don't put the thing into practice. The Bible says, be doers of the Word, not hearers only. Now, what a, a careless Christian does, the, James explains it, and he says, here's what a careless Christian does. He takes the Word of God, he reads it, he looks into the mirror of God's Word, and he sees the things that need to be corrected, but he looks at the Word, and then he puts the Bible down, and he forgets what he read. He never puts the Bible into practice. He never makes the corrections in his life. But a doer of the Word is one who approaches the Word. He finds the problem that's there. He sees himself in that mirror of God's Word. And being a good disciple, he makes all the corrections that are necessary. So he's a doer, not a hearer only. 
And so if you want to know if you're a good disciple, you need to evaluate that area. Do you read and do you study the Word of God? Are you actually putting the Word of God into practice? And here's my observation by looking at what some of the members of Brian Baptist Church do. Your life shows that you spend little time in the Word. Now, many of you see a Bible on Sunday morning, and you see a Bible on Sunday night if you come to the Sunday night service. And I, I say you see the Bible. Sometimes people that are in the church service never even bother to look at the Bible when they have one in their hand when I'm reading Scripture. But uh, you, you see the Bible on Sunday morning, you see it on Sunday night, but then you don't see it again for another week. So you are weekly Christians. And the result of that is you are weak Christians. You just don't read the Word of God. Well, on to another duty of disciples that stands out as one of the most important things that Jesus ever said on this subject. And I only touch on this tonight because there is an entire book of the Bible that's dedicated to this one thing. And that is that a true disciple loves other learners. A true disciple loves others who are disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, if you'll turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 13, uh, this is one of the most important scriptures that we have, and when Jesus talked about this subject, uh, John, who is the disciple of love, known as the disciple of love, he wrote the Gospel of John, recorded Jesus' words. He also wrote 1 John, and that's the book that I was referring to a moment ago that has love of other disciples as a theme. And Jesus tells us this about loving other disciples. In verses 34 and 35, he said, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Where would you find a distinguishing mark of Christians that stated more clearly than that? Everyone will know that you are a disciple if you love one another. Well, love is a very popular theme, isn't it? People talk about love all the time. Love is a little word that's thrown around in a big way, isn't it? I don't have time to talk to you about what the world thinks about love, but I can tell you what Jesus has to say about it. And it's not the kind of love that the world even thinks about or imagines at all. So let's talk about what does Jesus mean when he says to love other disciples? Well, there are actually two concepts that, that stand out about this love, and you can write these down for future reference. They come in two words, and the words are pattern and visible. Two words about our love for other disciples. There is a pattern, and it's visible. Now, the pattern is that Jesus said, as I have loved you, that you are to love one another. That's the pattern, as I have loved you. Now, many of us, some of you at least, may think that you have this down. Oh, you understand the concept very well. You've got this one down. But I'm going to tell you that you're going to spend your entire life trying to get to this level. This is a completely selfless love. This is when you can put the needs of the other person in front of you all the time. And isn't that the way that Jesus loved? We have no way to even gauge what it was like for Jesus to give up what he gave up to come to this earth to live and to die for us. He gave up everything. And the Bible says that he did that while we were yet sinners. We were hostile towards him. With all the strength that we have in our human heart, we hated the things of God. And yet the Bible says that Jesus came and he was willing to die for us. 
Now, you're going you're gonna to struggle immeasurably to reach this level. None of us has ever done it. And yet God still demands it. I've heard many people say, well, God never demands what we can't do. I'll take you through that theological argument sometime and show the fallacy of it. But just very, brief, very briefly, uh, some people say, well, God would never command us to believe, to repent and believe if we couldn't do it. Then you need to explain to me how that God says that we are to keep every commandment and we are to love as Jesus loved, loved as God loves. Can you do that? And yet he commands it. He tells us that's what we have to do regardless of our natural ability. So the way that I would adjust our thinking on this is to say that God never commands what he cannot do in us. That's the key. He commands what he can do in us. So our love has to be patterned after Jesus' love, not some kind of fleeting juvenile flight of fancy. Then the second concept is the word visible. He said, by this shall all men know. That tells us this is a love that can be seen. This is a love that you can put eyes on. This is one that shows itself outwardly. Well, how does it do that? Well, I like this song that explains it so well. We sang it in the morning service. It's the song, Speak, O Lord. And the writer said, Take your truth, plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness, that the light of Christ might be seen today in our acts of love and our deeds of faith. You know, I like it when a, the songs that we sing are very clearly biblical. There are acts of love and there are deeds of faith. James said that when you see a brother that has a need and you're uncompassionate about that need, you don't supply the need, then you really can't say that you love your brother. So think about your life. Do you help others? Are you not only sympathetic, but are you empathetic to the needs of others? Well, the Bible teaches that we are a body of Christ, aren't we? And, and it tells us that when one part of the body suffers, that all of the body suffers with it. But you know as well as I do, when your body suffers, you do more than just suffer with it. You want to do something about it. You want to take care of the problem. Now, in the human body, the uh, pain in one part, one part of your body, is felt in other parts of your body. Randy and I were just talking about that a few minutes ago. He said, the, you know, the pain originated in his back, but the most pain he felt was in his knee. That's the whole body getting involved and getting sympathetic towards what's going on. And so what you do is you say, well, I've got to do something about that. And when I have a pain in my back, it, it tells me I need to do something about that. I mean, your whole body gets involved in this thing. If I come up to you and I stomp on your toe, it goes all the way through you, all the way to your head. It might even get into your hands where you'll punch me in the nose because I did it. Now, the whole body gets involved in this thing. And so what we want to do when there's a pain in the body, we want to get rid of the pain. And that's what the Bible is teaching us about loving one another and taking care of one another is that we've got to take care of the pain in the body. We've got to deal with the issues that people are going through. And so that requires that members know each other. Doesn't it? You need to know people in your church. You need to know what they're going through, what kind of pains that they're suffering, so you can be a help to them. And I really do believe that every member of the church ought to be friends with every other member. And that's hard because some of you are very, very hard to love. You are. And, you, you know, you're not very pretty to Christ. None of us are, are we? And yet he loved us. I don't understand why he loved you. Uh, I, don't, I can't figure it out sometimes. 
But if you think that there's somebody that you can't be friends with and you haven't learned what it means to love unconditionally as Christ loved, you haven't learned what it says about being forbearing and forgiving to forgive as Christ forgave you. And maybe I should have just made that another point. I'd just say, uh, well, a real disciple of Christ is one who forgives. And you can take that point if you like. You can study that when you make your own sermon. Come to me and I might let you preach it sometime. Well, let me give you one more about duty. A true disciple is one who produces his product. When you go to an apple tree, what do you expect to find? Apples. You go to an orange tree, what do you expect to find? Oranges. You remember the story of Matthew 21 when Jesus went to the fig tree and he found no figs on it? Oh, he was very unhappy about not finding figs on the fig tree because that's an anomaly. That's an anomaly. You expect to find figs on a fig tree. So Jesus wasn't happy about that, and neither is he happy about a disciple who doesn't produce the product he's supposed to produce. And a true disciple actually will do it. You will actually have a product. This is what Jesus said in John 15, 8. Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. Now, I'll attest to you, as I have so many times, that when you got saved, your purpose was what? Glorify God. I mean, this is the whole purpose of your life. That's why you're stuck on this earth, on this round ball that we have, and that is you are to glorify God with your life. That's first and foremost. And Jesus said the way that you glorify God is that you bear much fruit. And he doesn't say just fruit. He didn't say a little bit of fruit. He says bear much fruit. And what are those fruits? Well, they're the acts of love. They're the deeds of faith. They're not sporadic, occasional acts. No, your life every day is to be lived like this, that you produce the products of real Christianity. So that means when you're out in the world, you don't have the right to be angry with people. You don't have the right to curse someone. You don't have the right to speak harshly to people. No, a true believer in Christ, a true disciple of His, will allow people to see Christ's life in them. They'll recognize that Christ is there. They see you're living for Jesus. And so whenever your life becomes an encouragement to others, then it prompts them to glorify God as well. Matthew five sixteen: Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Now going back to John fifteen eight for just a moment, he said, he said, herein is my Father glorified. You know what the herein means? You actually have to go up to verse number 7 where the previous verse where Jesus is speaking a prayer. That one of the fruits of discipleship is prayer. You'll have a prayer life. And there are many others. You'll, you'll find them in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, fruits of the Spirit and other places as well. So the disciple of Jesus is more than just a casual church member. And it means more than serving Christ just when you feel like it. It means a commitment, a real commitment to Christ, a commitment to his life, a commitment to his love, a commitment to his people, a commitment to bearing fruit to the glory of God. Now, I need to hurry. I'm out of time. So let's get this fourth very important point, and that is the demands of discipleship. Jesus never said that being a disciple would be easy. And I don't know why that this subject has come up so often in the recent teachings. I think possibly the Holy Spirit knows, I'm sure he does, that there's somebody who's really struggling in this area. And so the sermons just sort of converge on this, and they've lent themselves to make this point, that following Jesus means walking some very rocky terrain. 
I've touched on it a lot lately, so I'll not keep you long on it. What did Jesus say it would cost to follow him? Well, it's not a cost of money. Some people think that. Just give some more money to the church. That'll take care of it. Obviously, some, most of you don't feel that way. You've got some other plan. It's not giving money to the church. But here's what Jesus said about the cost of discipleship. He says in Luke chapter 14, verse 26 and 27, If any man come to me, this is tough stuff here, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Going to verse 33. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. And those verses tell us that God is not going to take you under his tutelage unless you put him first. He's not going to allow you to put anything in front of him. He's not going to allow you to have anything in the world that you put there. It can't be your family. It can't be your work. It can't be your house. It can't be your car. It can't even be you. Now, I've heard some people in the church say this. Well, here's the order. God first, my family second, and the church third. Well, that sounds good, but it's not right. We need to remember this. First of all, God's first. And if God is first, family does not interfere with your church. Now, have you considered this, that Jesus told us, didn't he, he said that we are to love as he loved? And we go to the book of Ephesians, and what it says there is that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. So where does that put the church in the order? Where does it put it? Well, the problem with many Christians is they, they think that they can separate God from the church. Oh, it's possible to serve God without the church. Do you know that that is the most dangerous doctrine that ever came down the pike for the growth of Christians? That it's possible to serve God without the church? Where do we serve God? Where's the place that he gave us to serve him? It is his church. You can't serve God correctly, you can't serve him the way that he says to serve without the church. So if your family comes before your church, it comes before God. And this is something that your family has to learn. They need to learn where your priorities are. So you need to teach them to respect the priorities. And when they do, they really come to this understanding that you're not actually shortchanging them at all. That doesn't mean that you, you just don't love them. That doesn't mean that, that you're ready to forsake them or something. No, that's not shortchanging them. What they'll find out is that you having the priority of God first in your life and your church first in your life means that's going to make a better you. And what they're going to learn is when you're a better you, you're better for them. So the family doesn't get left at at all. You know, what I really don't like to hear, Christians have come to me sometimes and they say, oh, you know, Aunt Sally's coming to visit on Sunday and uh, we're not going to be at church or some of my family just showed up. We're not going to be at church. You know the best thing that you can do for Aunt Sally and the other members of your family, if they're, especially if they're not Christians? They need to know your priority. You say, you know, we go to church on Sunday and you're welcome to come with us, but we're going to church on Sunday. Well, I guess that's just me. But I can truthfully say there's never been a time when anybody in my family showed up, expectedly, unexpectedly, and we said, you know, I think we ought to stay home from church because you're here. We just don't do that. We just don't do that. 
Now, if you want to consider family, do you ever wonder, you, you wonder, you wonder what, it, what makes the, the pastor's ministry such a burden to his wife? She has to lose her husband. She loses her husband to hours of studying and church work, and folks, those are hours that she would like to have. But my wife knows this, that she believes that my work in the church is ultimately best for her, that it is good for her. That's a very important thing. This is what your family needs to learn. Well, I'm out of time. I don't want to keep any longer. Uh, God says, Christ says, there, there, there's a certain demand here about discipleship. And he says, it's only when you forsake everything can you be his disciple. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. That's a high demand. That costs a lot. But as you've heard many times, the benefits of serving Christ are out of this world. Let me leave you with just a couple of passages of Scripture and we'll be done. Then that, then that discussion about if you don't forsake all that you have, you can't be my disciple. That's also recorded in the book of Mark. And, and here's what it says in Mark chapter 10. This is verses 29 and 30. We probably don't have this on the screen for you, but you might want to write it down. Mark 10, 29 and 30. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels. But he shall receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. And in the world to come, eternal life. And then Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. Why, we look not at things which are seen, but at things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now, there's a lot to be said about living for Jesus, and I've got a lot to say. The next few weeks, I've got a lot to say. The thing that you need to consider, is this where you are? Is this where you are? You, you evaluate the things that I've said tonight. Are you, are you where you need to be on these issues? This is the practicality of the thing, folks. This is what Scripture says about living for Jesus. This is the way you do it. And you have to start out with a very basic thing. You must be his disciple. And this is what discipleship is. So I hope in the next few weeks, as we look over these many different subjects, that you'll consider this. Where, where is my life in this? Am I living for Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time we spent together tonight. Lord, what an important subject that we have. Just the very basic thing. If we don't get this right, if we haven't fully understood this thing, all the other lessons that we give amount to nothing. We have to know what does it really mean to be a disciple. So, Lord, help each of us tonight to examine our lives, see if we put these things in place, see if this is what our life is like. And we'll, we know ourselves and will others know that we are truly disciples of Jesus. Speak to our hearts tonight, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 
or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.